Matthew chapter 12, let me just kind of recap a couple of things leading into this. Uh, first of all, uh, chapter 3, if you recall, John the Baptist called uh, the Pharisees vipers. Uh, in chapters 5 and 6, Jesus destroys religious confidence in terms of if you put all your hope in how to act a certain way in all of these laws, Jesus just blows that out of the water. Chapter 9, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Um, chapter 11, you see that there is doubt, criticism, indifference, open rejection, and then eventually blasphemy. And so where we're at in chapter 12 is, is kind of the turning point of this. Now I have, uh, I'll just tell you up front, I've even set my little uh, phone up here as a, a timepiece um, because we have 50 verses, so I know I've got to keep a certain pace. So I have a magic number in mind. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I kind of keep an eye on that for you. Uh, there's a lot to say. There's a lot to look at, but we're going to try to march through it as efficiently as possible. Essentially, here is the, the theme of what is up against each other, okay? There is behavior modification versus heart transformation. And so Jesus is confronting a group of people who have the outward righteous acts down. And what he keeps slamming into their way of life is, yeah, but your heart is all kinds of messed up. And so this is these two competing ideas that are going to keep showing up in Matthew chapter 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your love, your kindness, your grace, and mercy. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And we ask, God, that you would do the work that only you can do. That this would not just be an intellectual exchange of information, uh, but it would be a, uh, a movement of your Holy Spirit from your heart to the hearts and minds of the people here that you have gathered for this purpose and this time. Do the work that only you and you alone can do. It's in your beautiful name. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Uh, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. Now, we're not going to stop this often, but just so you know, the fact that they're strolling through the grain fields, we know a couple of things. Um, scholars would say, you're, you're about to read how the, uh, the disciples actually are pulling up wheat, which would say that it's probably somewhere around the month of April. So at this point, when we're in chapter 12, we are roughly a year out from when Jesus will be crucified, okay? Also, just so you know, um, the Sabbath is taken very, very, very seriously. And so the fact that the disciples are even moving, that they're even on the move, as you're about to see, they're already in violation. When I tell you that the Sabbath is taken very, very seriously, it's not just going to church. Actually, they had these extra writings, these extra biblical writings and these rules and regulations called uh, what would later be called the Talmud. Just so you know, the Talmud has 6,200 pages in it. It is full of rules and regulations. So let me, let me just give you a taste of what their Sabbath looked like, okay? This is, I'm just giving you a little percentage of what would otherwise fill up 6,200 pages of what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. Um, you can't travel more than 3,000 feet from your house unless Friday, because remember their Sabbath was on Saturday, unless on Friday you planted food, which would then therefore take, would therefore be called your home, to where then you could travel 3,000 more feet from wherever you planted food. Um, where there was a narrow street or alley, if you put a rope, a wire, or a board between those two dwellings, 
um, you technically turn that street into another home and you could then go another 3,000 feet. Okay. Uh, things could be lifted or put down on and from certain places. You could lift something up in public and put it down in a private place and vice versa, but you could not lift anything up in public and then put it back down in public. You couldn't lift anything up in private and then put it back down in private. You could only do one or the other. You lost yet? Okay. Uh, lift up something in a wide and illegally free place. Um, scholars spent years and years trying to figure out what is a wide place and what is a legally free place. If you're confused, so are they. Um, you could never carry a burden that weighed more than a dried fig. Or you could carry something that weighed half as much as a dried fig twice. Either or, there's your option, okay? There's, there's, a, little, there's a little wiggle room for you. Uh, forbidden food. Um, you, if you were, certain foods, if you were gonna eat something that was forbidden, like an olive, and let's say you ate half of the olive and then you spit it out because it was bad and you wanted another olive, well, they said because your mouth can't see how much you ate, you technically, that counts as a whole olive. Sorry, it's Sabbath. Uh, here we go. Uh, da, 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 da. This is just, it's just craziness upon craziness. A tailor can't carry a needle. A scribe couldn't carry a pen. Pupils couldn't carry books. Um, you couldn't examine clothing, clothing because you might find an insect and kill it. All of those are violations on the Sabbath. Wool can't be dyed. Nothing can be sold, bought, washed. No letters or communication could be sent. No fire could be lit. Cold water, interestingly, could be poured on warm water, but warm water could not be poured on cold water. An egg couldn't be boiled, just so you know. Um, you can't take a bath for fear of water falling onto the floor, which would then be technically washing the floor, which would be considered work. You can't light a candle, nor could you blow it out. You can't move chairs because there was a chance that the chairs would drag across the dirt, and therefore that would be considered work. You guessed it. Uh, a woman couldn't look at a glass. Sorry, ladies, on the Sabbath, you can't look at a glass. Are you ready for this? This is real. Because she may see a gray hair and pluck it out. So we got to protect you from vanity, even thousands of years ago. Uh, women could not wear jewelry. You want to know why? Because most likely it weighed more than a fig, okay? Uh, grain and food laws. Here you go. You couldn't carry more grain than which would fit in a lamb's mouth. I'm sure that depends how big the lamb was that you happen to own. Uh, you could not leave a radish in salt because it could become a pickle. And that puts you in a pickle with Sabbath laws. Okay, wine, honey, that was cheesy, I know. Okay, just hang with me. Uh, wine, honey, milk, even a rule on spitting. Uh, you could only spit in a rag, not on the ground. You could only carry enough ink for two letters. Not two full letters, just two individual letters, okay? Um, let's see, dirt on their clothes, they were really big about how you would clean it. You could only carry enough wax to fill a tiny hole, uh, like for an earache. Here are 39 common things that were fitting, forbidden. Sewing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, sifting with a sieve, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting it in the weaver's loom, making two threads, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot or undoing it. Sorry, can't tie those shoes. Sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, catching a deer or killing it, 
that would just, man, some of you in this room can't catch a deer and kill it. I just ruined your whole weekend. Uh, skinning, salting it, preparing its skin, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, scraping in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing or lighting a fire, beating with a hammer, carrying a possession, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Can you see why Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest? Can you see why now in the last chapter he says, look, we need to go to the Jews. These people are exhausted. It was more exhausting on the Sabbath than your nine to five job the other six days a week. They were exhausted. So let's continue just in verse one. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and to eat them. Interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy, that was legal. When you were moving through someone else's field, it was okay, it was permissible to grab something and, and take a bite. You just couldn't cut it all down, but you could take a handful. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, you disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now here's what you gotta know, the brilliance of Jesus. The disciples were doing this, not Jesus. He's already three steps ahead of them. Verse three, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Now this is sarcasm to the nth degree. All these people did was read and study and Jesus goes, um, I'm sorry, haven't you read? Of course they've read. That's all they ever did was read. So he's immediately going, you know, haven't you guys read about this guy named David? Who, by the way, is just their superstar, okay? So he's, he's laying on the sarcasm really thick, okay? So haven't you read uh, what David had done? Now, he uh, entered the house of God, it says in verse 4, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So what happened in um, 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run. He goes into the temple. There is what's called uh, showbread. Showbread was 12 loaves that the priests would put out, each loaf with six and a half pounds of flour. This is big. No one could eat the bread but the priests, without exception. But David walks in according to 1 Samuel. He and his men are hungry and he eats the bread. And Jesus is throwing back in them, didn't you read that? Because not even David was supposed to eat it, but they let him. What's up with that? And of course, then Jesus keeps laying it on. You gotta love this, because see, we don't always think of Jesus as being a little sarcastic. We just think of, think of him as just being this kind of robotic figure, right? He just says certain things and disappears. Here he is in verse five. Or haven't you read in the law? Of course, you just heard the Sabbath, right? That on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? Okay, so what he's also saying is, here you have priests back then, who had to make sacrifices. They had to lift up the sacrifice. That sacrifice weighed more than a dried frig. They had to kill that sacrifice. That's also forbidden. They had to light that sacrifice on fire. That's also forbidden. And his point is very simple. Your priests work on the Sabbath. It's kind of like me. I only work on the Sabbath. You all know that, right? That's all pastors do. They just work on the Sabbath. That's it. Okay, then verse six. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. So this is Jesus already telling them. For them, the temple and the Sabbath was everything. And Jesus is telling them, one is greater than the temple. What you have lifted up and put all of this investment and time in, what is standing before you is greater than all of that. 
Those are the kinds of words that get you publicly executed. Verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees have become so consumed with what is legalistic and what is kind of this legislative way of looking at everything. He's saying you're, you've lost mercy, you've lost kindness, you've lost compassion. And even if you were put in the situation with a sheep, would you not show mercy and kindness and compassion even on the Sabbath? And he's trying to reorient them. The purpose of the Sabbath is to do what? It's to think about not only to worship our God, but to contemplate our love for our neighbor and our love for our God. And that had been lost. And so Jesus says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as the other. Now this is what is beautiful about what Jesus does. He didn't even grab the man's hand. If you caught that. Nor did he ever say, I command that your hand be healed. He just said, hold up your hand. So the point being, Jesus did a miraculous work and never technically broke the Sabbath. All of those 6,200 pages. He just asked the guy to hold his hand up and it was healed. Now, of course, when people are indignant to Jesus, this is the reaction you get, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how to kill Jesus. That's how wild and impressed they were. So he moved to verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor one will hear his voice. I'm sorry, no one will hear his voice in the streets. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. I want you to read verse 20 again. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. What Jesus is saying is this. Are you ever just exhausted and beat down mentally, emotionally, and spiritually and physically from the daily grind and onslaught of this life and of sin and of temptation and of your past and of your struggles and the way people can treat you. Are you ever just exhausted of staying on that wheel? Matter of fact, are you ever to a point where you're just beat up? Matter of fact, if if we were to have an imagery of maybe even your faith or maybe even your hope that's right now in your life, that it would be, as Scripture is, he just said, a smoldering wick. And Jesus' point is very simple. I meet needs with compassion and, comp- and kindness while the rest of you, as he says to the, hip- as to the uh, Pharisees, are nothing but hypocrites. 
And so let me just say, if you're here and you're beat up and you're bruised, if your faith in God and where you're at in your life is a smoldering wick, what Jesus says in his kindness and his compassion, I will not put that out. That I have patience and love for you. And in fact, by his grace and his mercy, he will fan that back to a flame. So he's revealing to them the heart of Jesus, the heart of his Father, the heart of God. Verse 21. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Now, 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. What he's saying is, you see me driving out demons. And by the way, your people are driving out demons. So either we're all demonic or we're all doing the will of God. Verse 28, but I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he, then he can rob his house. This is great. Okay, man, this is just the sem nerd in me. But I gotta, sh he's using a home invasion robbery analogy to make his point. A lot of times when Jesus makes a point, he talks about agriculture or uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, he just compared himself to someone who breaks into a house. I love that. And what is he saying? He's saying, who is the strong man? The strong man in what he just said is Satan. And who's bound up? Well, it's not only demons, it's people that are under the control of Satan, that are under the oppression of Satan, that are under the possession of Satan. And Jesus is saying, I come into the strong man's house, I tie him up, and I take back what is mine. In other words, if you are under the oppression of Satan, if spiritually you're beat down, here's the good news for you. Jesus doesn't have a conversation. He doesn't knock. He doesn't have dialogue. He comes in, he beats down the door, and he takes back what's rightfully his. And so that's what he shares very, very clearly. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Um, basically, is to put it in context, the Pharisees, every chance they have, oppose Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is, they oppose him. And what Jesus is saying is, the Holy Spirit does what? The Holy Spirit grants faith. The Holy Spirit creates and sustains faith. And he's saying that the way that you see the Pharisees acting, in that they would oppose Jesus in every way imaginable, that is, if you've ever wondered, the unforgivable sin. Just to put your mind at ease. If you've ever wondered or worry that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. <laughs> okay, you're good. 
Uh, and just a side note, because I hear this culturally a lot. Uh, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Just so you know. That if, I, know I know that may have affected different people in this room in different ways. Of people, you know, That's not the unforgivable sin. Verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here's what Jesus is giving you insight. When you're around a critical person, when you're around a hateful person, when you're around a negative person, when you're around a legalistic person, that is a heart issue with that individual. When we speak a certain way, that's coming from the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. There isn't a separation of, oh, we just say something intellectually. No, that, that's actually a heart issue. So a very critical person most likely has something, if you dig anywhere around there, not to go to Dr. Phil on us, uh, is probably very, very critical of self. Uh, a very legalistic person usually has a massive blind spot in their life. Like they've got something that they probably just pushed way off to the side and they're so good at nailing everybody in this room on what your issue is. A hateful person, once again, seeds that go straight to the heart. And Jesus is saying, when you deal with people who are legalistic, who are critical, who are hateful, it's a heart issue. It is a heart issue. It's not just their opinion, which therefore is a spiritual issue. Verse 35, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of a huge fish, and the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now one greater than Jonah is here. I love that Jesus validates the ministry of Jonah. Sometimes you see uh, in, in conversations, maybe you had these, oh, I believe the Bible, I believe the Bible. Yeah, but I don't know about like Jonah. I mean, was a man really swallowed up by a fish? I mean, could that really have happened? And, and that may be you, and I'm not, I don't wanna be uh, critical. I mean, we all gotta work through that, okay? think through that. I know that's a challenge. Let, let, me, let me put it this way, just briefly, because this in our time is about Jonah. Here's how I think through that stuff. I start with Jesus. If I can believe that a man could be publicly executed and rise from the dead, that's the most over-the-top thing ever, okay? If, if you can believe that not only did he die and rise from the dead, but he also came from a virgin, and oh, by the way, he's going to come back and take us all to go live with him forever. Being swallowed up by a fish, I think, is the least of the stretches, okay? I just I want you to know that. So you might as well just go all in, be called crazy. It's okay, okay? Because no you're already in the deep end if you're in here, okay? You're already following Jesus, this incredible story of God intervening into human history. So just be encouraged. Um, the world will think you're a weirdo, and that's fine, okay? All right. 
42, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. So what have we seen? Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He's pointing to all these prophets, and he's saying, the greatest is here. It's fulfilled. Verse 43, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Verse 45, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Believe it or not, that's actually not a text about exorcism. In its context, here's what Jesus is saying. Here you have people who have deep-rooted spiritual heart issues within their home, within their lives, and what did they do to deal with it? Well, they went and cleaned everything up. See how nice everything looks? Everything was put in order. Even though underneath is this real issue of maybe of, of a heart toxicity or a heart far from God, and this is what he's addressing is what we like to do. So we just cover up issues and problems with more expensive clothing and makeup, right? With just a, a bigger grin on our face. We just plug into all these other ministries so we can just stay active and stay busy. And he's saying, all you're doing is just cleaning up your house so it looks better. And what he's saying is, is ultimately, that has nothing to do with when Satan, demonic forces, and the evil of this world moves in. Just making things look outwardly more pretty doesn't address the real issue. And the only one that can address the real issue is Jesus. Now look, I, I know that, before I even move forward, this text is very... If you are hearing something that's hitting a nerve, if there are things that are starting to pop up in your heart and your mind that are challenging you right now, can I just give you the best possible advice that I could give you? If you only take one thing from this sermon, when you feel, uh, start to feel crushed, when you start to feel condemned, man, just go to Jesus. Remember that you're forgiven and loved children of God. Let it drive you to Jesus. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So let me just say this to you in closing. If you have come from a rough family, if you've come from a family with dissension, if you've come from a family of brokenness and toxicity, what Jesus is saying is that by his mercy and his grace, his death on the cross, claiming you as sons and daughters, that guess what? You have an older brother and his name is Jesus. And you have a father and his name, well, actually in the Old Testament, was Yahweh. And here we just see him as God the Father. That's an incredible family to be a part of. 
That's the family that by the gospel you are plugged into. And that is chapter 12.